Between the Chapters, a weekly podcast discussion focusing on a chapter of the book, 25 Years of EdTech, written by Martin Weller. Here's your host, Laura Pasquini. All right, welcome to Chapter 9 in the Between the Chapters, uh, 2002, The Learning Management System. I'm joined with a great panel of colleagues to talk. I have Caroline Kewen, Laura Gibbs, and Brenna Clark. Great. Welcome. Thank you for joining me and to talk about uh, the infamous LMS. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having us. Um, I think this is a great chapter to start and gas our ideas and, and what do we think about it. Absolutely. So I was always curious of why people want to talk about the LMS, because my personal hot take, I have always struggled with learning management systems as an instructor, as a student, as a faculty, as a now instructional designer. So there's a lot that we need to unpack in this chapter. Um, and I don't know if anyone wants to share their perspective, because this positions the LMS coming out in 2002. I don't believe in my undergrad. I was in Canada at the University of Guelph. We had a learning management system then. We had like a portal, but there was no LMS formally. So um, who wants to share their thoughts on the LMS? So I just wanted to say you you started with a really um, phrase or, or word that just um, triggered something in me that I think is worth sharing. I think the LMS feels, has always felt for me like a straight jacket. And I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a rebel. I always have been. I can't help it. It's just, it's too late also to help it. So <laughs> I feel always, when I was a student, I felt again, that was, someone was imposing this thing to me. And being a teacher, I feel that even worse. And I think I have to do it because I, at the moment, at the moment, I can't, um, I don't think I have things that I would need in order to do it differently. So it's it's still a straitjacket and it feels very uncomfortable to me. So that, that is how I relate to this. And I guess that's why I wanted to be here to just kind of, you know, see like <laughs> kind of pull the straitjacket a bit off my body. Yeah, it can be a tension. Um, and, and I think a few of us have talked in our pre-chat a little bit about um, what it means to be confined and constricted because a number of you have been involved in the open educational resource movement, openness and being an open educator yourself. So what are you thinking about it? Well, for me, my career is along the same timeline as Martin's that um, I started publishing web pages in 1998 when I was in graduate school. That was the very end of graduate school for me. And it was a life changing moment you know, so Caroline was talking about a straitjacket. Another straitjacket I felt was just the classroom. You know, I wanted to reach out and connect with people. The work I do is kind of weird. You know, there's there's a, a limited number of people who are interested in the weird work that I do. So, so I need a big audience so I can find the people who might enjoy my work. And when I realized I could just put my stuff online, my dissertation online, all the notes that didn't go into my dissertation online, the the lists and lists of animals and anecdotes and stuff that I've been working on, all I had to do was hit publish and there it was online. So that was in 1998 and I got my teaching job at the University of Oklahoma in 1999 and I had my students publishing web pages then, even when I was still teaching in the classroom. And then I started teaching fully online in 2002. 
which was what I wanted to do, you know, to do the things I, I, I thought were most important as a teacher of writing, as a teacher of folklore, as a teacher of world folklore. Getting online was really important to me. And then it was about the same time that the LMS came along. And I was just struck by the horror of it from the start because we could all be creating websites. The university even gave us web space to do it. And then we would have links we could share with people. And the LMS is not linky. It's not part of the real internet. And the price that we paid for investing in a closed system like this now for almost 20 years is a very high price. And I know it's justified by all kinds of institutional needs and purposes that the the LMS serves, but I would love to see us pare down the LMS so it only serves those institutional purposes without being the kind of straitjacket that Caroline was talking about, that, that, that constrains students and constrains teachers from using the internet to its full advantage. It's funny, in the chapter, Martin actually used the word Faustian pact, is what I'm reading <laughs> in this book, and I was laughing because we're all like, there's this regime that's come in, and the the LMS is the boundaries of where we have to sit in this like little courtyard. Um, Brenda, what are you thinking about this as we talk uh, kind of <laughs> hyperbolically about the LMS? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm uh, thinking about how I'm a massive hypocrite, which is why I volunteered myself for this discussion. <laughs> um, so I started my undergraduate career in 2001, and um, my experience of the learning management system as an undergraduate was that only the nerdiest and most tech forward professors were playing with it. So um, whereas now it's often the place where folks who don't really like technology, but need to serve things to students online, hang out. Um, then it was like, oh, there's this new cool tool and only four of my instructors are playing with it, but I'm going to learn it because I have to. And I don't think I minded it as a student. I wasn't a particularly, I don't know. It's an undergrad. I, okay. I'll do what you tell me. Like, I really was it's fine. Um, and as I moved into my career, both in terms of um, wanting to be a public scholar and wanting to share my work publicly, um, and also just as a, particularly as an early instructor, I really chafed against the learning management system as a concept. Information is meant to be free. I wanted to put everything on the open web. And for the nine years that I was a full-time community college instructor. I only used the learning management system when I absolutely had to. When I was teaching fully online courses, the institution for the old, uh, what if you got hit by a bus reason, wanted my materials for the fully online course in the LMS. But even when I taught hybrid, I taught through WordPress. So that's a long way of saying I fully embrace all of the arguments against it. I found it chafing as an instructor and I wanted to play in a more open space and I wanted my students to engage in authentic assessments in the real world where they could meet other minds and disagree. And that was always really important to me. Uh, and then about well, seven months before the pandemic, I changed careers and I became a faculty educational technologist. And then I had to move 500 faculty members, two thirds of whom had never used any kind of electronic tool in their teaching uh, onto the internet because of this plague that we're living through <laughs> right now. And suddenly my, the value of the learning management system really changed for me because we had an incredibly small team who had to move a very large number of faculty, many of whom were extremely resistant and all of whom were panicked because we had a week to do this change. And suddenly the value of the LMS for all the reasons Martin 
talks about it in the book as being good enough, that, that good enough concept, mm-hmm. that became all I needed, right? I needed something good enough. Um, and so I became like a, a little bit evangelical about the possibilities of the LMS, which feels very uncomfortable as a place to be. But also, I don't know what other option I had, right? And I still have a few faculty members who are doing their cool open web projects and I'm supporting them, but they're getting a lot less support than they used to because I have so many more faculty to support. And yeah, I really needed a set of like, every tool is identical and all the support materials look the same. And like, that has a real institutional purpose that I simultaneously hate and wouldn't have survived the last nine months without. Yeah, we are recording this at the end of November 2020. And it is a call out that we've all stated our biases on the table. I, I'm with Laura. I agree. Not linky. Not linky is a great term, by the way. And having closed systems was I brush against. But I think the LMS and something that we forget is this is the first time institutions had consistency because the previous chapters leading up and the conversations I've had with folks is they were hodgepodgey. We were putting things together haphazardly and for our learners um, and even the faculty that are working in and the instructors that are there to design, it was very confusing. It was a wild west of things that didn't make sense. There was no consistency. Um, in the last chapter, I talked with um, Lorna and Phil about e-learning standards. There was no standardization on things. So it was kind of a, I guess this is the solution we're going to put forward because we want to support online learning, digital learning in a cohesive campus way. And it makes sense. So someone could pop into a course and see that as I guess I started looking at the LMS as the hub that is where everyone could find the things and they could go to it. I'll chime in, though, with a, a complicating factor, right? That's how I've used the LMS is I know my students go there first. And so I embed a blog in there in the homepage, which is the announcements. And, it, and it's fine. I mean, the LMS serves that basic purpose for me. But I don't want this whole podcast to, to vanish with out us talking about a, a, a really big, dangerous, fierce, savage elephant in the room, which is the new role that the LMS has started to play just over the past couple of years, right? Because, you know, our complaints, is it clunky? Is it good enough? You know, we can go on and on about that. The LMS is also now serving a new data collection purpose that it did not originally serve, right? So that all this data is being accumulated companies want to figure out what they can do with that data to make money because that is the goal of these companies, right, is to make money and this is a new product that they have. And so at the same time that we can go on at great length and even spend most of the podcast talking about, you know, is the clunky trade-off good enough? How do we sort of not stifle innovation even while we're trying to promote consistency? We've also got to talk about institutional responsibilities regarding the data being collected by LMSs because institutions have failed abysmally to be proactive about that data and we we can't let them off the hook because the conversation is just starting. I know no one really wants to talk about it during the pandemic, but Brenna knows how important this is. Ian Linkletter, her colleague, was one of my uh, collaborators in trying to bring Instructure to the table to talk about data issues, and it's it's big and important. So I'm throwing it out there. We can talk about it later or now, but it's a really important LMS issue. No, it really is important, and I'm, I feel often very insulated by the fact that the institution I am at takes a strong 
stand on issues of data privacy and we're an open access institution which changes our relationship to to vendors for example not that they aren't making incursions because they always are um and that's a conversation we have to have all the time we do use moodle um and talking to individual instructors all the time who would like a, de a deeper integration between say the homework package that they've decided to have students purchase or the e-text like they really want to give pearson access to our moodle for example and that's a line that we've said like absolutely not <laughs> so i feel lucky that i'm working within a larger system that respects those ideas because i know that if i was at a more vendor forward institution capitulating to the lms in the way that i have would be a much more fraught concept. So I'm really glad you bring that up, Laura, because it's incredibly important that we don't lose sight of who's making money, right? Who's making money? How are they making it? What do they plan to do with that data in the future? That's all critical. And I feel like it's a conversation that doesn't get had high up enough in our institutions. And, and you know, if, if I might jump in, um, in relation with the data, the surveillance, you know, all what that, what's going on there, I, I think, so I'm at the moment working on a project that is about critical data literacies and, you know, how do you, how do you foster that? And we're creating an open educational resource. And, you know, the, the, the basic thing is you do not let, or you, you're not a passive, um, how can I say that, patient mm. from whom the data is extracted, but also from then which they profit, and here we are, like the victims of that system. And I think that that one of the things, and, and it's a practical activity that we do. Where are you being traced? So what are your what are sorry? What are the traces that you leave? Who gets them? Who is after them? Like breadcrumbs. And I think that that the the these open and and, and loose or interoperable tools, however we want to call, I call them open participatory tools they do allow us to at least on, on, what, on, on, on a minimal extent to say, I don't want mm -hmm. to agree to these cookies or I don't want to, you know, I want to opt out to this or you have some kind of, you know, I think, yeah, some kind of agency. And here is where um, I don't remember if Laura or Brenda said, I feel hypocritical, you said? That's me. Um, That's me. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 you know, I think we need to be, if, if we have to, if we have to bear with the LMS, um, because the different, I mean, not only the crisis, but because I think this is, you know, education is a massive business. And, and, and Martin was saying here, 200,000 students, is that what they um, serve with the LMS? Of course, you can't do this. And on an individual basis, let's do this and let's do that. But I think that we as teachers, and I work in a in a particularly teacher-oriented university, we have a really strong um, PGCE, which is the Postgraduate Certificate in Education. And, and I think it is my responsibility to, to say to my students, you know, this is the LMS, but this is what it does. Mm -hmm. And how can we resist? And there is a magnificent movement Movement, which is designed for resistance and I think if we you know if we don't want to be so hypocritical or hypocritical we at least in our small spaces we need to create the space of res for resistance mm -hmm. and that's you know in a way I, I really advocate 
for opening the eyes of students and this is what's happening, this is what people are getting out of you, do you want to? You don't want to, well, then you have to do something about it. And, and I think this is something we cannot lose sight of, I think. No, I think we have an ethical responsibility to do it because in so many ways, the learning management system, especially for students who have encountered a similar technology from the beginning of their educations, it trains them to think in a certain way, it trains them to behave in a certain way, and it trains them to have a particular set of expectations um, around their data and their data privacy and whether or not they are sort of active agents in their education. And unfortunately, we all work at institutions where we all have colleagues in some capacity or another who are very happy to let that train keep rolling, right? For lots of reasons, for reasons of expediency, for reasons of efficiency, all those kinds of terms that that I hate and also recognize are not empty arguments. Um, But I think, you know, we we like to talk a big game about how post-secondary education is an opportunity to teach people how to think and to create good citizens and all this kind of stuff. But if you're not actually doing the hard work of having those conversations and challenging those tools, you're not getting very far, right? And I, I think it's really hard for students who so rarely encounter those conversations all the way through their education to understand the value until sometimes it's far too late in, in the process. And that's what critical pedagogy is really about. Paulo Freire in mm-hmm. the 70s, when he set up all his movement, one of the things he really insisted is that the material that starts the conversation of my teaching session or experience is the reality of my students, what they are experiencing, and trying to see which of these invisible oppressive structures are occasioning in, in, it was different in Brazil, absolutely completely different in the 70s, even more different. But I don't think that the, the, the core idea that he was addressing with starting with the reality of your students is very far away from what we now should be doing. And if we are teaching in an environment where the LMS is taking the data, then that needs to, we need to find a, a place where that is the starting point of the conversation. And from there, we see what we're teaching. And then you see how, you know, how you can then, you know, I don't know, go right or left. It depends on what you do. But I think if, if critical pedagogy is a thing that we, are, and I am very interested, or coming from Venezuela, this is where I, I lived for 40 years, even more so because I, I am very aware of social injustice and, you know, social um, inequality, which is massive in, in Latin America. So I, I do believe in critical theory and in critical pedagogy. And I think that we need to have the uncomfortable conversation of this is happening. What are we going to do? Mm-hmm. Well, well, and that idea of agency is what ties the data question back to the larger question of the LMS, right? Because something feels like a straitjacket, that's probably an indication that you don't have a lot of agency in there. And I think that's what disappoints me the most about the, the LMS is that, you know, in the early chapters of, of the book, Martin talks about, say, constructivism. And I remember having just knocked down, drag out arguments with people about constructivism, back around 2005. You know, it's the kind of thing that, that you would talk about in, in well, I was at Google+, Plus, but, you know, in Neem, wherever it was, educators were hanging out, you would talk about that. I, I get the feeling we don't talk about that very much anymore, not like we used to. We've kind of given over to this idea of the LMS 
being a best practice, right? And and LMSs just default to this kind of top-down, teacher-led lack of student agency. And that's that's why I don't use it. And it really concerns me that if we're going to be preparing students for a world of political complexity and employment complexity and just personal identity complexity, simplifying and making sure that everything feels the same is... It, that's not what we should be doing, in my opinion. It's funny that you, what you said there, Laura, you said about um, looking to the LMS as best practice. And I think the tragedy is that I don't know anybody who thinks the LMS is best practice, right? Even, even the folks who, have, who administer it, the folks who select between LMSs for an institution, I've never met anybody who suggests that the LMS is a best practice. So if that's the case, like if if there's nobody who's really like, this is the best possible way to educate our students, then what's the alternative, right? And in many ways, the alternative is something that our institutions have have decided against, which is staffing and supporting faculty development and educational technology and giving people the support they need to explore a different way. Um, but we've decided that that, like, <laughs> we'd rather stick with a system that we pretty much all agree is not the best way to teach than, than do that, <laughs> right? Which is like, oh, great. Yeah, it's investment in our, our um, industry. And, like, I think mm-hmm. higher ed likes to forget that they are an industry, but they are. Yeah. And in the process, um, I think some of – it's been interesting because – this chapter could be the pivot point for the future ones when we talk about learning analytics to AI to surveillance. I think yep. of Shoshana Zuboff's surveillance capitalism. Like we've let these tools and platforms, um, and and so I know that Martin even talks about Jason Lanier's uh, software sedimentation, set the protocols, set the practice, and make the decisions. And we've just kind of coasted along, mm-hmm. and we've never been. Um, like I'd love to see um, as we train other faculty developers, instructional designers, instructors and faculty to teach in digital spaces, the ethics of some of these considerations, because I don't see those woven into any kind of curriculum or training certificate or anything like that, where they say, should I be using this? And what permissions and data do I really need for my learners or myself? So Laura uh, Gibbs, I think you've done well to like say, this is important starting point of the first kind of sedimentation into these enterprise campus-wide and even across countries because we're in four different countries um, that we started doing these different things um, and we accepted it in Canada in the UK they accepted it in the US and then our friends that are in Australia where Moodle comes from um, I think we've all said I guess this is the route we're going to start trucking without stopping to ask some critical questions on what information are we taking from this and how do we get out of this sedimentation process? Um, I, I want to add something here, which might sound extreme, um, but I think extremes are always good examples to, to put things into, into, you know, into the view of, 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 of the, the, our audience. Hannah Arendt, um, she's a German philosopher who um, was very interested in what happened with the Nazis in the Second World War and the case of the whole Auschwitz and the whole technology that was created in order to be more efficient to kill more Jews. And people sat in a table and, you know, they were deliberating, well, you know, we should do this and then maybe, you know, if we have more things and then the angle of the thing... And in the trial of this guy who I 
at the moment don't remember the name. Um, and he was saying his answer to this horrendous, um, you know, genocide was, oh, but you know, I was following instructions. You know, mm. I was, I, I wasn't doing really nothing, nothing out of what I, I was following the instructions I got. And Anna Arendt said, evil lives in banal people. And evil is not a thing. So you won't find an evil person in a really particular place. And in a, no, no, that is in our everyday life. And it looks like completely normal people. So what I want to say here, it's extreme because of course it's not the same. But I think that this really blindly following instructions is very, very dangerous. And, um, but there is also one thing that I would like to put also, um, you know, as we're humans and we need the job, we need our work. We are caught into a capitalist system where we can't really bear without the money. We just can't. And that has us in a way um, caught and particularly people, you know, if if you're not maybe in in a space where this is, this is where you feel like fish in the water and you can have maybe another job. And, but if you are in a more precarious situation and you have maybe three children and you have three jobs and you're not in your country and you're, you know, you have left a war zone, you won't put that on risk and you just go with what the system you know, tells you to do because you are. And I think that that the problem really is that uh, Silvia Federici, who is, she's a feminist and she's a Marxist and she says something lovely. They have taken away the commons from us. Mm-hmm. And we have not been able to say no because the way in which that has been engineered has been brilliant. And I think she is right. And, and, you know, I always wonder, what is the option? What can we do? And I think we can. I don't have the answer, but I think there is something that we... And I don't think the LMS needs to disappear. I think we need to, we need to tame, in a way, that beast. We need to find users that maybe are administrative or the great... You know, I don't know, the massive work, so the, 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 all the things that need... But I think in the teaching, we do need support for something different. Um, and there needs a hybrid, uh, I don't know, combination where we can use both things and we don't need to, you know, yeah, to comply with, with, with because we have to. And I think that's very dangerous and it, it oppresses us and it, it disempowers us. And we're always less and less against that system and against also, you know, the, the institution as it stands at the moment. Yeah, and one one of the ways we get disempowered is that we're so busy all the time, right? No one has time. So it's like what Brenna was talking about in terms of just the massive amount of work that you have to do to support all those faculty. And I think that's the same for so many instructors. You know, you might be an adjunct instructor who's cobbling together jobs at different schools and teaching, you know, five preparations. You might be at a school like mine, a research school where most people are under enormous pressure to produce tons of research and they have very little time for their teaching. And I think that's where we need to look for solutions, right? We're not going to find a technological solution to the problem of the LMS. It's not going to be a better LMS. The technology will not save us from a system that takes away our time and does so, I think, sometimes for very sinister motives, like what Caroline was saying, you know, the best way to disempower students and faculty and everybody else is, is, is to not give us time to reflect mm-hmm. on what we're doing, to organize, to try to do things differently. 
and just honestly talking about time is important and also about the way that ed tech has promised us time saving hmm. over and over again every time i see a piece of technology that says this is going to save you time so that you have more time to spend with your students i i don't know about you all that just burns me up every time i see that line but it never stops you see that line over and over again in the selling of ed tech and and we have to push back against it i think so it sounds like we're going to lead the resistance um no i think something that i've learned in some of these conversations that you all are talking about is I don't think we should take away the education piece at all. We say ed tech, but education needs to be a bigger piece of it. And infusing some of those methodologies and practices before the tech is really important um, in any of these spaces. And I think it is a system of you can make a to-do list and organize your life and do this, but unless, yeah, unless you have the resources, which is time, people, um, other things that are supporting you and scaffolding you, you're never going to catch up. It's going to be like trying to keep your head above water. And I wonder, thinking about this chapter, I think that Martin did well to kind of introduce what it meant to different people, but I don't know if we really he really touched upon that piece. So I think um, my one call would be is, where do we put the resources needed to actually use the LMS? So that's my question to Martin. Are there things that you're thinking about asking either Martin or the community about what they're not thinking about the learning management system and how we use it or how we could use it now that we're past 2002. There is a line that he writes that I highlighted and it says, this is to be expected as we search for new metaphors to understand the ways in which new technologies can be used. And Ruha Benjamin says something beautiful that is, Imagining something different is a journey of struggle and there is no way that you can change things if without a struggle because imagination and utopia is exactly that is how to you know is that journey of struggling for something that is not yet there and I think the search of that metaphor I find that really wonderful and one could write a crowd how do you say crowdsource chapter mm -hmm. with metaphors what do you think is a metaphor that we can really turn this thing upside down and find the right use for it, which is an administrative use. You do what you want in your admin stuff, but leave us the teachers, mm -hmm. the freedom. And the, so the, what are these metaphors? And I think it would be lovely to create an appendix with one of these, you know, what are these possible metaphors? And can we ask our community of people, you know, open education or, whatever you know it doesn't matter but I, com I think our community which I, I i really find it really strong the community that we're part of can we start to think about metaphors and can we can we yeah it would be lovely to have a chapter collecting these metaphors and i open i i'm sorry i how do you say i um offer myself to do that because i think that can be highly powerful what that's making me think of there's a piece that jacob gowell put up of metaphors for the syllabus. You know, because the quest for metaphors, it's not just about technology, right? We should be challenging ourselves about the most basic things we do in school, the things we take most for granted or the things we most need metaphors for. And so like you do the syllabus, you make the syllabus and I'll see if I can dig it up and send a link to, to Laura. It's, um, it must be like a hundred different metaphors for what a syllabus could be. You know, a, a travel brochure was one of my favorites, but he just runs through all these different ways. You could sort of free yourself to think of the, the old 
once again, straitjacket-like syllabus as something new and wonderful, I think it would be kind of painful to think about all those, you know, metaphors for the LMS, knowing that I will not see them come to pass in my lifetime. But let's drag out the old one. I don't think people talk about this anymore, but it was it was in existence surely for a solid decade. The walled garden. Remember when everybody thought that was a good idea? The walled garden. So I we should do a Google ngram to see if people still even use that, but they used it for a darn long time, and I didn't like it the whole time. So there's a bad metaphor. Oh, yeah. I threw up in my mouth a little bit thinking about that one, Laura. Thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> Are there things then, maybe it's not about the LMS we have questions with, but maybe it's just, as we just focus on this one thing, we re- we're starting to realize why do we have to put this on a pedestal? I think that's what I'm considering. And our institutions still do. And it's because it makes it easier or uniform. And I don't know, teaching isn't like that anymore. Learning isn't like this anymore. It's not as compartmentalized. And maybe that's why I push back on it. Um, whether it's the walled garden, which I think of, and I immediately go into a walled maze where you get lost in it. Um, I think we've just made it very complicated um, and and we've taken away some agency that some of our own instructors could have and their own creative ways, like how would they want to teach or what ways would they want their learners to learn instead of the, um, the, the where, I guess. Uh, oh, the biggest problem I see with investing in the LMS is it just doesn't go anywhere, right? If you look at how it's evolved or rather how it's failed to evolve over these past 20 years, it's pretty clear that it's stuck for all kinds of reasons. And part of its ethos is stuckness, right? That you don't want things to change. You want everything to be the same. But if you look at something like OER, if you look at in Martin's book, he traces that great evolution of how we have these ideas like learning objects. Well, that all kind of failed and standards, metadata kind of kind of staled out. But what evolved from those failures is this great new OER world that is pretty exciting. Even on my campus, OER is exciting. I mean, there's exciting OER stuff happening all over. And those grew out of things that we admitted were kind of failures. We can't afford to admit that anything about the LMS is a failure, right? Partly because vendors cannot admit that their product is not the best, most innovative, most revolutionary, whatever. And also because institutionally, we just can't admit that kind of instability around this thing that we're promoting Really, as a best practice, it's it's interesting to hear what you said, Brenna, because at my school, there are plenty of people who will stand up and say the LMS is a, a, a best practice, and they send out emails every week to remind us that it's a best oh. practice, and using the LMS <laughs> Literally is, never heard that in my life. Oh, is it? <laughs> and I think it's because we face even bigger pressures at a research institution, you know, where faculty just aren't about innovating their teaching. They need to be told, well, j- just do this, use the LMS, and 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 that's that that will be teaching excellence right because we want to have teaching excellence so anyway i think the LMS teaching is, excellence with no investment or support <laughs> right there you go it's magic yeah so, yeah so the lms worries me because you know what do we get for all that we pour into it i don't see that we get as much as we get in other kinds of investments no, I mean, I, I have office hours every week where folks can drop in and, and get support for their, um, particularly since we started doing the, what do we call it, emergency remote teaching. Um, and I, uh, it's the most depressing question in the world that I get asked, which is, I used to do XYZ face-to-face. How do I do that in Moodle? 
<laughs> like, well, you kind of can, but here's, you know, a 900 step path where we sort of subvert the purposes of each of these individual tools and we kind of get something at the end. Or I have this other tool that might better facilitate the kind of conversation you want to use, whether it's WordPress or Mattermost or whatever. But then for really good reasons, instructors are like, I don't want the students to have to log into two places, right? I don't want them to have to manage multiple tools. I don't want them to have to, and, and I have to say, like we do student surveys. I hear from students all the time. Why do I have to log into six different places to take my four classes at this institution? I, I hate it. Why do I have to learn multiple video platforms to make it through this semester? I don't like it. <laughs> to survive Why in the work world after well, university. It, true, yeah. <laughs> but they're also, you know, we are none of us our best selves right now. And, and we're all cognitively overtaxed. And even something as simple as, you know, Blackboard rolled out that fairly minor update, I believe, a month or so ago. And I don't, Twitter was like, what have you done? I have to put the text in a different spot. And I, ah! Right? It's like we, we are all so full. And my biggest fear, well, not my biggest fear, it's a pandemic, but a major fear that I have is that we are so overwhelmed and overtaxed right now that it's a perfect moment for like old school disaster capitalism to come in and promise us a way through. And I don't know about you guys, but like I'm super tired and, you know, going to committees, I mean, I do it, but my heart's not in it in the way that it typically was. I'm not as invested in governance as I was when I was not exhausted. Um, and that's my concern. I mean, I know we don't want to be exclusively pandemic focused. The book is so much more expansive than this last nine months. But I think in many ways, this crisis is like the last 25 years of ed tech in, in, a, in a condensed space as we sort of look for the next solution um, as we, we do things like throw our support behind e-proctoring tools and all kinds of surveillance tech are, are as colleagues and outside of this, this industry, there's spy tech in our homes because of our workplace computers. And this is all happening so quickly. And when we don't have the bandwidth to challenge and resist, and that's, I think, that's what I think the legacy of this period is going to be. And it scares me to see what we're going to come out with the other side. So I'm glad we're having a conversation about resistance and, and what could we have done then, or where should we have invested and how can we change course? Because I think there's an awful lot of pressures that will push us towards some pretty terrible decisions. Um, but, you know, I think we, could, we should not lose sight that this is an emergency. We mm -hmm. need to be really careful to, Whenever this is, and it's gonna be over. It's gonna be over because it's got, it got, it has passed in all the times where we have had pandemics or epidemics. Um, and I think one, we need to be, you know, stewards of. Mm -hmm. We don't. We're not in COVID now, so let's change course. And yes, you're right. We mm -hmm. have to do that, and 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 I think you know, change doesn't come from outside. You are the change. It's you doing it, and it's yeah. you doing it one and the other one and the other one and then you know it it, it the energy attracts and then there is this you know the, yeah the but what brenna said about disaster capitalism which love me some naomi klein and the shock <laughs> doctrine i do think there is a cause for awareness that we don't let these certain 
tools, vendors, practices creep into our return to whatever is going to return to. It's not normalcy because nothing was normal. But the future of ed tech will make some decisions now that could have ripple effects in the future. And so the idea of shock doctrine, as you may all know, but just our listeners is there is a crisis and people swoop in to do X. They talked about economic changes. Well, um, ed tech is part of the economy and part of the economy of scale in higher ed. So if we don't push back on some of these things um, that watch us, that track us, that collect our data bits, um, then this will be continued practice because that sedimentation idea that was brought in this chapter is still relevant. So I know this was written a couple years ago and Martin ended this. He said, it's not fashionable, but maybe we should probably give the MLS a little respect and a little love. <laughs> I don't think those are the words I would use. What are the words uh, if we went across the panel to say respect and love? Um, what are the words that you all are thinking of? Well, I have to chime in here because I'm going to actually say something good about the LMS. Okay, yes. The pandemic and what caught me by surprise, because I'm just so naive, right? I get caught by surprise again and again. What happened at my school was not that everybody started using the LMS. Everybody started using Zoom, oh, right? Sorry. It's been the Zoomification, right? As if we didn't even have the LMS because everybody wants synchronous face-to-face. -face. And so I'm having a great time talking with you all because we're four people, right? But we have these big classes that people are trying to do in Zoom. And they're not using the LNS, LMS because they haven't really even thought about what asynchronous education is, right? So for us, emergency remote teaching meant emergency remote synchronous teaching. And you have to be there, not at the place, but at the time because it's going to be in Zoom. And that really surprised me because I thought, well, here's a time where the LMS can prove that it actually is useful. We actually need it now. And we weren't really even promoting it. It was just because the easiest thing to do is to try to reproduce your classroom online. You can do that with Zoom. When I started designing my online courses back in 2002, people said things like, don't just try to reproduce your, your classroom class. Well, it's like, how would I reproduce my classroom class in 2002? There was no audio. There was no video. There was no Zoom. So the temptation wasn't even there. So they were saying, don't try to do that. It's like, yeah, whatever. You can't do that. Well, now the temptation is real to just reproduce the classroom badly online with Zoom. And the LMS is a better alternative than that, right? I mean, at least the LMS is more accommodating of students in all kinds of ways in terms of access and differentiation. And you can do, you know, some, some student agency things in there if you kind of go in and trick things around. So the LMS would get more love from me than, than Zoom does, even though I'm saying that on Zoom right now. So... What other words? I, I so I I don't know if I'm going to give it respect um, or love, but I'm going to give it cautious care. That's going to mm -hmm. what I'm going to give the LMS because um, I think there's some things that are affording. Yeah, asynchronous learning is where it's at for me, and I I'm with you, Laura. Is I don't see it being as accessible. I don't see um, synchronicity that people jumped into right away as great for what uh, Brenna talked about, cognitive bandwidth. Like who has, not, who has time to show up to another meeting? Thank you for joining me in my meeting in this podcast. But I want it to be portable. I want it to be accessible. And I want people to get it at their own time in multiple ways. And Zoom's not going to do it. And the LMS has some components that you can create those spaces for learners to pop in on their just-in-time learning or training or whatever they're doing and come back to it later. I'm going to give it um, 
some strategic use and a lot of resistance. Oh, you guys all use such good words. I was going to say care and I was going to say resistance. I'm still going to say both those things. I think that if we can be frank and honest about the learning management system's drawbacks and failures, we are in a better position to help faculty to use it well. And, you know, back in June, Brian Lamb and I did a session for campus called So You Hate Moodle. It was all about like how we were two people who had like sort of staked our public identities on a distrust and dislike of the learning management system who are now herding 500 people into the learning management system. And we wanted to be really honest with the community about what a fraught choice that was and where it came from and what we hoped they would do differently than the default in their adoption of it. Um, I think we often aren't given the space to have that kind of a conversation. And, you know, we had 100 faculty turn out to that chat and, and it was great. It was sort of all about here are some alternatives, but here are the problems that we see and here's why we did it this way and here's why we don't think we could have done it a different way even if we wished we had the resources to and and I think folks were really responsive to that so I'm embracing resistance and also care and suggesting that we can approach the LMS with an awareness of those issues and and make it something that we can live with when we must um, but I still ultimately would like to advocate for everything else first <laughs> Except Zoom. I hate Zoom more also, Laura. I also hate Zoom more. You know what? There is no Zoom chapter. That's great. Um, so perfect. Um, I think I also heard two things from you, Brenna, that I want to call out is transparency mm-hmm. and awareness. And I think those two things and sharing with our community and people listening that maybe aren't even in that tech at all are like thinking, oh, why aren't I being more aware and transparent about what's happening? Um, and I think, honestly, our candid honesty is going to be great. So these candid conversations, I am grateful for for all of you. Um, before we wrap up, are there any final thoughts, questions, uh, call-outs? Yeah, just want to say that awareness and transparency is part of uh, resistance. It's been living my whole life, Caroline. You know me. <laughs> No, I just want to thank you. It has been lovely to be here. Lovely to, you know, the, cha- the experience of the book and the, between the chapters. Uh, mm. It's part of this, um, what I think really the community of, of people that is, it is so, you know, a particular, you know, I, I left my country and this is my family, the family of the open educational practices, the Goji and the, and, and it, it, it is so beautiful, really, to see how we care for Martin's book and how we have come to this idea and how we are here and now we're all exhausted. And here we are, you know, caring for the LMS, caring for Martin, for the book, for the community. Mm-hmm. And this, for me, is a thing that has no price, and I'm grateful, really, to be part of this. And, and so I wanted to thank you. Yeah, I'm very grateful. And, and a shout out to Martin, too. I mean, because I've never met him in person. I've never been in a classroom with him. I've never taken a class from him. But I've learned so much from him over the years at his blog, and he's at Twitter, and this book. And to me, you know, if we can all make contributions like that, I'm, I'm this kind of Pollyanna utopian person. I really believe in that. So, you know, be like Martin. It's great. <laughs> You know, I'm still so, I still feel so very new to the discipline. I've only been in this role for a a little over a year and um, just being invited into this conversation and and getting to be part of this whole project has been a real gift. And I I echo Carolyn's comments about the 
the power of this community, I think it's really quite remarkable. Um, and in all the different ways I've seen the community come together to support individuals or to help to challenge systems or to work towards a, a kind of productive resistance, I'm inspired every day. So getting to do this is a real joy. Thank you. I'm honored for all of your time and even coming into a Zoom room. Um, so thank, you, thank you very much. And so let's be the resistance. And uh, until next time, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Laura. Thank you for thank your effort. Thank you. You've been listening to Between the Chapters with your host, Laura Pisquini. For more information or to subscribe to Between the Chapters and 25 Years of Ed Tech, visit 25years.opened.ca.